Future trading involves risk and is not suitable for all investors. Content provided in this segment is meant for educational purposes and is not a solicitation to buy or sell commodities. Hello and welcome to From the Furrow, brought to you by Everag Insights. Each week we speak with subject matter experts on news and topics affecting the grain markets. I'm your host, Britt O'Connell. Let's get started with a review of the markets. Today is Wednesday, April 19th. July corn opened the day four and a half off, trading 640 even. And July soybeans opened five off, trading 1486 even. Turning to our guest, this week it's our privilege to have Shelby Myers, Grain Market Intelligence Director with Everag. Thanks for joining us, Shelby. Thanks, Britt. Happy to be here. Shelby, last week, the USDA gave us their monthly world ag supply demand estimates, but they didn't offer us much new news. It was a pretty quiet report. Were there any takeaways in that quiet report for you or any watch points looking forward? The April WASD does have a tendency to be a non-event, and so maybe that wasn't as surprising, but... The way that we've watched uh, certainly demand factors on old corn progress over the past couple of weeks, I was a little surprised that they didn't touch too many of the line items on the balance sheet. You know, what they did on corn was lower corn inputs by 10 million bushels and then consequently and kind of offset that lower supply with a decreased demand to food, seed, and industrial, but not in ethanol, just in the the broader category. So really interesting there based on the data that has come through that I think the big takeaway is that we got to keep watching what USDA does with the old corn crop and even the old soybean crop for that matter, because they didn't touch the soybean balance sheet at all. But we'll keep monitoring that because there is a chance that USDA hunted those future changes for the next couple of months as we close out this marketing year. And that'll be something that we got to pay a lot more attention to as we start showing up the new crop on the balance sheets in May. May is always one that's eagerly anticipated by the market for that very reason. It's our first official look at the 2023-2024 balance sheet. Back to old crop. On old crop soybeans, March posted the second largest ever soybean crush. What do you make of that with the already tight stocks that we're projected to have and the strong cadence of exports? Crush is certainly an area for soybean demand that is going to get a lot of attention now and over the next couple of years. You know, we are keeping an eye on that demand category rising with the potential for the U.S. to double its production capacity of renewable diesel by 2025. And we do have plants that are expected to come online over the next couple of months starting here in 2023. So we really need to keep an eye on how soy crush progresses over the next couple of months to meet that increase in production capacity. We're already on record for soybean crush this year. I anticipate that to grow further. But the other thing that we need to kind of consider in the U.S. and something that planting intentions, I think, brings the question about is where are all these soybeans going to come from? You mentioned tight stocks, and that's continues to be the case. And We've always kind of ran with tighter stocks on the soybean balance sheet. Uh, But as this demand category continues to rise, and we know it's going to rise, 
we need to find the supply to to meet the demand. I thought it was really interesting. You made a comment a few weeks ago in an internal conversation around where we where the USDA currently has projected its acre increases and some of those areas were areas that you should monitor carefully because as we all well know generally speaking it's the fringe areas that have an impact on those swing acres the areas that maybe are a little more sensitive to the planting time and weather and things have got to align a little more perfectly in order for them to get those crops in, get those crops harvested. So certainly I think as we move into planting, which everyone is chomping at the bit to do, weather's not necessarily cooperating across most of the U S but we know that the farmer can get, you know, get a crop in in a hurry. I think that'll be interesting to see because the USDA has started to release its weekly crop progress reports. I'm curious, as you dive into those, is there anything that sticks out at you yet? Or is it pretty much in line with what you would expect to see this time of year? Well, I think to your point, we're keeping an eye on the corn and soybean progress, particularly because we do continue to monitor soybean to corn price ratios and the trade-off that many farmers decide to go through in picking a corn rotation or a soybean rotation. And from the prospective plantings report that USDA released at the end of March, there were some big takeaways that basically a lot of cotton acres in the South were pulled away from cotton to go to corn and not necessarily soybean acres being pulled to corn or vice versa. And then we also saw a lot of evidence for the USDA incentives for double cropping insurance that potentially could have led to more wheat acres on top of soybeans. So our soybean numbers continue to stay neutral as far as planting expectations. So not really rising to the supply that we talked about. And I I think that's a pretty interesting piece in the overall scope of it, of where do we grow more soybeans? And to your point, they are a lot more finicky when it comes to the temperature that they like to be planted in, how they grow and develop. We've worked really hard to make our corn varieties resilient. And so there's a lot broader varieties to be grown throughout the United States, as opposed to the soybean that is pretty concentrated to the East Coast, to the Middle Plains. And that's about it. And so, you know, crop progress kind of speaks to all of that, that, you know, we were starting to see corn planting at a higher pace. The most recent data puts us at about 8% of the U.S. corn planted. Soybean planting progress was put at 4% for this past week. Both are higher than average for this, you know, week 15 of the year. Uh, That third week in April, we're usually sitting at about 5% corn planted and usually about 1% of soybean planted. So folks certainly got after it the last couple of weeks. The big question is, did they plant the crops in time for a cold snap to really promote optimal growth in that plant? And how we move along throughout the next couple of weeks, you know, by the first week in June, we typically have almost all corn planted in the U.S., And it usually takes until about the first week in July, last week in June for all of soybeans to be planted. And a lot of that has to do with our crop insurance dates as well, that, you you know, you have to submit all of your final acreage 
in by certain dates. I know for us locally, corn is June 15th. And so uh, making sure that all your corn is in before that date is particularly important. And so you tend to see progress follow that. But right now, it's a matter of taking advantage of nice weather and making sure that soil temperatures are appropriate for what you're planting that day. I want to pivot a little bit, but kind of stay in the same you know, line of thought around the growing season. Our neighbors to the south have, uh, Brazil specifically, has recently gotten that safrina corn crop planted. They've harvested what is declared to be a record soybean crop. Now they have go in right behind that. They've planted a big corn crop. Have you heard any news specific to how that crop is, is coming along? Well, let's start off with Brazil and talk a little bit about their crop. So we're moving into the time where we're really focused on that safrina second corn crop. And right now conditions are pretty great and beneficial for that second crop to to do what it needs to do. It It is responsible for about three quarters of Brazil corn production. And so if that crop continues to have the weather that it needs to really thrive, we could continue to meet the expectations that we have right now that Brazil is going to have a record corn crop. You know, numbers that I saw over this past week say that in certain areas, there's 100% of the second crop planted starting to germinate just a little bit and in vegetative development. The, the numbers that I think are really a big deal for us to pay attention to is that only 3% of the safrina crop is rated average. The other 97% is rated good. And so that's a pretty big optimistic estimate for what is happening down there for a big crop out of Brazil and something to keep an eye on. What kind of impact could that have, Shelby? If they grow a record crop down there, and I'm not asking you to do number gymnastics live here, but if they grow a big crop in South America, let's call it a record corn crop, and we grow, you know, a good crop here domestically, what does that do to the global balance sheet? Does that put us in a spot where we're going to see continued pressure on corn? Is it kind of status quo? What what could that, how could that shape up on the global balance sheet? On the global, I think there's a third prong to that scenario that we do have to consider Ukraine and Russia and the output of corn there. If Brazil does what we think Brazil is going to do, they're already estimated to be the largest corn exporter in the globe this year. And say the U.S., you know, 92 million acres of corn this year, say that comes to fruition, maybe even we go a little less, puts us at about average. It does make things a little tighter on the corn balance sheet. But that other big question is Ukraine and Russia and the fluctuation that they have of corn output over there. And then the logistics that it takes to bring Brazilian corn north and east to deliver to countries that are typically serviced by Ukraine corn or even you know U.S. corn to an extent, depending on any of the additional transportation costs that would be associated with that. So there is that potential, and that's certainly something that U.S. farmers need to be aware of, is that when your biggest competitor does an outstanding year, that's going to impact the supply side. And then on the demand side, where else do we send corn? We certainly need our big buyers, like in the sense of U.S. corn, Mexico, in the past few years, China, 
Japan, all of them to come to the table. And then we also need things like domestic demand, uh, you know, ethanol's kind of had a, a flat neutral year for old crop, you know, does that category get bigger to accommodate some of the, the U.S. supply and help maybe tighten those stocks, loosen those stocks, um, you know, certainly a, a variable to play. And then feed, I think, is the other thing that we really kind of have to pay attention to. The feed category for U.S. farmers has been lower than the past couple of years this year because corn has been at a higher price. Again, I continue to say this, circle September 2020 on your calendar because that's the pivot month of when we saw low prices turn high and continue to see the fallout of some of those dynamics. And so if feed purchasers come back to the corn table domestically, uh, maybe global stocks aren't as big of a concern for U.S. farmers because we've got domestic demand um, to work on that. But yeah, there's always that chance. It's going to fluctuate. How about Argentina? They've been in the news a lot lately. What's the update on Argentina? So Argentina is starting to move into their harvest season. And I think just like their weather woes, their harvest woes might continue. You know, they're just about 10% of corn harvested as of a week ago. And it's just not not good quality. Unfortunately, the drought has really taken a toll. So nearly half of their corn condition is in very poor condition, poor or very poor. Um, They've only got about 7% of that corn crop that's in somewhat favorable, good, excellent condition. If we look back to last year, the tables were very different. We were about 24% at that same time, very poor 21% 21% excellent and then fair with the with the other half of the corn crops. So Argentina continues to struggle on the corn side and then on the bean side too. I think the same could be said. It just has not been favorable conditions for them. It's too dry and anytime they've gotten any kind of rain, it's not enough to help with any of the damage that's been done already. And it's not enough to, as we like to say, cure any damage that, that could be through the growing season. One last question before I let you go, Shelby. Russia and Ukraine have once again been in the news and grabbed headlines. Most recently, Russia has said that they're likely to end the Black Sea trade agreement. What do you make of this, and can they end the Black Sea grain agreement? I've heard various reasons why Russia kind of, quote-unquote, needs to stay in this Black Sea agreement. What's your take on all this? Well, this is a very interesting kind of political negotiation that's happening on the global stage. And for listeners that may not be up to speed, the Black Sea Grain Initiative, it was signed in July, and it is specified in the agreement to run for 120-day chunks. And at 120 days, it's reassessed of whether or not it would be extended. And so it's been extended. We kind of came to this period in March where it had been extended twice. And the discussion from Russia was, if we're going to extend this again, we only want to extend it for 60 days as opposed to the 120, because we want to use our leverage to reduce sanctions on Russia. And, you know, global grain movement is a way to do that. So 
we moved through March that the agreement was extended, but nobody really has said whether or not that's a 120-day extension or a 60-day extension. And I think a big reason for that is, you know, globally, they don't want it to look like one side or the other one for their own reasons. So we're about 30 days into this most recent extension and Russia continues to say, we don't want to extend this past 60 days unless we get what we need out of a deal. There are no sanctions on agricultural products. But there are sanctions on things like insurance and logistics that move agricultural products that tend to be the concern for Russia. And so using the leverage that they have as a global grain provider and trying to navigate this deal that, yes, is favorable for both countries to continue because the revenue that they receive from selling grain on the global markets is beneficial to their domestic economies, but also playing this almost prisoner's dilemma scenario of who will blink first. Uh, Does the global grain market suffer because Russia is going to hold out for the reduction in sanctions? Or do they continue to sell grain to get the revenues that they need for their domestic economy and continue to push for the sanctions that they want reduced. It, it's this very high drama back and forth that, that is playing out right now. And so we're about 30 days into this. May 18th is when the 60-day period would be up. Of course, that's in the middle of when U.S. farmers are going to be planting and you know, likely in the midst of focusing on their own farms, not really focusing on what the global markets are doing. You know, That's why we at EverAg are here to help to make sure that we give those updates to our clients. But it's something that we're going to have to keep an eye on because that's a day that could really make or break a grain market. Certainly lots to monitor on the global front, on the domestic front. And to your point, Shelby, if listeners would like to have access to these updates by way of EverAg, how can they do so? Certainly reach out to our office and and get connected with a grain marketing advisor. We have a publication that's free to users, the Market Moment, that comes out weekly. It's a publication that I'm the lead author on and like to pick out some new and interesting topics to to kind of make you think, huh, I hadn't thought about that this week, that really impacts grain markets. And then, you know, we're trying to put together as many educational opportunities as possible. So we did a spring grain webinar and looking forward to doing more webinars that offer opportunities to get everything, get all the information that you might need for grain markets as the year progresses. And so a lot of ways to connect with our team and the services that EverAg provides. Shelby, it was a real pleasure having you on today. Always appreciate your time and your insights. Glad to have you on the EverAg team. If you've enjoyed listening to From the Furrow, subscribe to our podcast, share it with a friend, or give us a five-star review if you deem it worthy. Thank you to EverAg Insights and especially Corey Romero for producing today's production and Paige Driscoll for mixing and mastering today's show. 